Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. It's Tuesday. Yeah, we've moved the release day of these podcasts to Tuesday. Monday just seemed to be a bit, I don't know, didn't really seem to fit right. So yeah, we're going to be on Tuesdays every week going forward. And yeah, today, this week on the show, we have a drum and bass legend, a proper drum and bass legend. It's Steebridge. Really excited to have him on. It was a great conversation. We covered lots and lots of stuff from the early 90s jungle scene all the way up to him releasing albums on his label Exit Records in the present day, covering Bad Company, of course, and also the Autonomic Project with uh, Instrumental that I really found extremely inspiring at the time. That was kind of 2009, 10-ish sort of time. And um, yeah, he's a great guy with a lot of interesting things to say. So um, yeah, I think you're going to enjoy the conversation this week. I'll be back after the main section to talk about news and releases and music and um, yeah, set I played last week at Her Berlin, which was fun. Um, I'll tell you about that after we get into this. So without further delay, here is Debridge. <laughs> D-Ridge, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Been a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm very well. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I live in uh, Antwerp in uh, Belgium. How long has that been for? Ooh, uh, since 2015 now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Belgium's a, it's a pretty good music place, actually, particularly Antwerp. I've, I've played there a good few times and it seems to have a, um, it's got a bit of a, like a history of like particularly for sort of bassy type stuff is it well how's the scene like there at the moment it's um i think it's you know they're, they're getting back it's slowly getting back on their feet i think some of the some of the clubs have definitely suffered um ampere for example 
Um, I think it's Vargas, the other one. Um, but I think, yeah, they're slowly sort of getting getting things together. Um, there hasn't been... And like Antwerp's famous for like, there's that really big DMB festival here, like Rampage at Sports Palace. I don't think they've done that in a while. So, but I've, um, I know things like up in Brussels are getting back on their feet, like Fuse and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, they, they, they're getting back on it. Yeah. Okay. Right. There's a million things I want to, I want to ask you about okay. today, but, um, just to get started, I had Roscoe on the show last week and we were talking about London music scenes and particularly, um, I guess scenes that came out of the uh, you know the hardcore thing that you know happened mm-hmm. in the early nineties, and obviously drum and bass is a big big part of that. But the kind of distinguishing finger that I kind of detect in drum and bass is that basically all of those other scenes had a real sort of boom and then bust, and then really struggled to get out of that bust cycle. But drum and bass seems to be like particularly resilient. Um, in a way that you know, garage wasn't really, and and particularly with, I mean, I mean, my own experience in dubstep. What is it about DMB? Do you think that gives it that kind of resilience? Um, I mean, if you agree with that statement in the first place, you know what I mean, yeah, no, definitely. It's like it's it's one of those. It's weird. It's almost like it was seen as like the the, the sort of the unwanted child of dance music for some for so long. Do you know what I mean? So it's always had this kind of like. F- sort of fuck you attitude to everyone else do you know what i mean this is kind of like as much as 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 many times as the as the press tried to write it off it just you know it wasn't going anywhere and i think it was it had a lot to do with um just the artists involved themselves in general just kind of like having this real passion for what it was we were doing and moving forward because there was nothing else really like it. Do you know what I mean? Because it's, it's it's almost like it's in a tempo range that's nowhere near anything else. So it didn't have anything to sort of sort of be compared to in that way. It wasn't like a a slight offshoot of something. Do you know what I mean? It was influenced, definitely influenced by a lot of other scenes. But it was just it was sort of out there on its own, doing its own thing and not really caring what anyone else or any or anything else was doing. So it's because I obviously I grew up with it sort of from when I got into it, it was like 92 um, and it was coming out of that hardcore into the jungle phase and that kind of just especially you know growing up in London as well and it was just so all-encompassing it was everywhere and it was just kind of like it was a real sort of it was a way of life um, you were just kind of like you were just when if you were in you were in do you know what I mean and and that's and in some ways, that's probably been part of some of DMB's down, not downfalls, downfall is the wrong word, but just kind of like it's, they were so insular in, and sort of blinkered um, in in their views and kind of like it was, it was, it's like a do or die attitude. Was it quite, was it quite sort of protective of itself? I mean, that's the impression I had from the outside that it was kind of like a, if you're, if you were in the club, then, then great, but it was quite difficult to get in. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think it was in some ways. And I think my, part of that was probably down to the fact that people try to write it off. So it was like, well, we're not going to let you. So we are going to be super protective of it. And, <laughs> you know, and some say it was like it was difficult for people to get into. And I, I don't necessarily think that was true. I think as long as you, if you were, if you were writing something that people wanted to hear and then you'd get heard. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it, w- it wasn't the protective in that sense, I don't think, but it was right. it was just very protective in 
of people discrediting it. Do you know what I mean? And talking bad of it um, and try, yeah. And trying to bring it down um, because it was, it was, it wasn't, you know, it could still arguably is one of the, you know, the last true real new genres. Do you know what I mean? Of like original genres of music because it was just so, I think just from a simple mathematical sense or whatever, because it was just so far removed in the tempo range from anyone else at, at the time. Um, I don't know, maybe, yes, yeah, I don't know, maybe Gabba was closer. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it was just, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a strange, it's a strange, strange club. <laughs> right. I mean, I was, I was reading, um, I was reading transcript, uh, transcript, sorry, to your Red Bull Music Academy lecture back from 2005 and okay. you were talking about, um, yeah, this is that's going to inform quite a lot of this because <laughs> you go into it. But I'm kind of in, interested in kind of updated because okay. that's a long time ago now. Um, but you said in that um, that and you, you were talking about sort of major labels getting interested and all that kind of stuff, which obviously you had a bit of a taste of with Bank Company. But you you said that um, for for you guys in the, in the drum and bass scene, you had the mentality of like having them come to us rather than us going to them. That that was the kind of mentality about it. We weren't going to go out and, and try and sell this if people were interested, and that's cool. But like it wasn't really a you know there was no hard sell. And I was kind of sort of contrasting that with the impression I had of Garage about the same time, which was much. Well, it struck me as being much more of a um, you know, let's kind of get rich quick kind of attitude, which I, I mean, I'm sure there will be people, people who are engaged at the time, which would kind of take issue with that. But I mean, do you think that's a kind of fair like contrast? It's hard to say because I don't, I, I never, because you know, as scenes come came along, because there was always this kind of like a um, sort of conversation bubbling of whenever a new scene come along, it's like, well, are you going to be a bandwagon jumper? Do you know what I mean? And just yeah. and get on that train. So I was, and I was never really. Because I was so staunchly DMB, I was never about that. Do you know what I mean? And that was so. That was all part of the kind of culture as well, kind of like this. You know, sticking. This this is my crew. This is what we do. I don't really care what what anyone else is doing, and and that's and if they want to do that, that's cool. And that's kind of like I think led to to DMB's longevity in so, in some ways but also kind of I think you know maybe stifled it in some ways as well but you could be argued that that attitude and the so-called sort of way it sort of circled the wagons or whatever you know that kind of like not letting one in helped encourage other scenes to be and other other scenes to grow and flourish do you know what I mean because certain people felt like they couldn't get into DMB so they went off and did their own thing do you know what I mean? And and I, f- there's a part of me that thinks that that has happened over the years. Um, oh yeah, I mean certainly with I think that was a that was a thing with dubstep and and also it was it was just a great example as well of what you can do with music that you love. You know, keeping it underground and you know growing it sort of organically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't, it's, yeah, I've never, I suppose I haven't really thought about it in such a, in such a long time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and because it is weird, it's like it's like now we've come sort of full circle, and DMB, and DMB sort of went through this whole f- being like overground for, for want of a better word, um, you know, and getting number ones in the charts and things like that. So it's sort of like okay, we're going to get back into bed with that that idea, um, but still, there's this there's this sort of sect within it that's just kind of like no, I'm not having none of that. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to don't have anything to do with it. so it's kind of like 
all these offshoots sort of happen, but there's still this core underground kind of like, probably led by the likes of Goldie, to be honest. Do you know what I mean? He's just right. kind of like, he doesn't want anything to do with sort of commercial success or something, maybe. Um, but I think it's, 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 it's what I'm quite, I'm, I'm really, I'm quite proud of some of the, you know, the, the fact that it's been able to do that. It's been able to kind of get these number ones um, become such a, almost like a, a career choice, you know what I mean? As a genre, which is quite weird. Um, you know, you get these sort of new groups, pop groups coming along and be like, right, we're going to make drum and bass. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a thing now, which is quite weird. Um, yeah. I mean, when, you know, Andy C's doing his gigs at Wembley, I suppose kids look at that and think, shit, yeah, I could, I could, uh, make a living doing that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that as well. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I can't, I can't mix like well, I don't know. I don't know what his his his, his mix rate is. I mean, it's something like eighty tunes per thirty minutes or something. <laughs> it's like I, I, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not that uh, fast. So, um, let me ask you something else, sort of adjacent to that, which is another thing that came up in that in that interview back in two thousand five, which is about the, about dub plate culture. Um, because that was like integral to, um, to early dubstep. But what, um, what you mentioned in that, that interview back in 2005, which surprised me a little bit was that you were saying that dub plates weren't so much of a thing early in the drum and bass scene and it became something that you didn't see as necessarily being positive. Is that something that you look back on now? And I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, I don't, yeah, it was, it, I, <sighs> No, it wasn't really a thing. It didn't feel like a thing because it was almost like every back then it was almost because it was maybe it was easier to press records, but everything was just going to promo and it was all about white labels and and you knew it was going to come out. Do you know what I mean? But then, but the scene as a whole changed because it was back then it was a, the the DJs and producers were two separate entities. Do you know what I mean? So it was that that was there was never that confusion. But when once it became to a point where producers realised that they could earn a living DJing as well, do you know what I mean? It was like that sort of that side of things um, took over because it was like I can I can do a I can do a set of of just my stuff, or I can just supply a a you know ex DJ with my stuff and. He, you know, you know, he's going to be have access to a certain audience, and it, it would help your career in that way. So it was like dub plate culture kind of grew. It felt like for me, as as a producer, it grew grew that way, and I sort of experienced it. Obviously, you know, coming from when I was with Hardware as Future Forces, and then suppose you know when I was actually doing well as as Bad Company, we were part of that kind of cycle of. Right, we need to. So, is, so, so is that a kind of late nineties development? Then, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think kind of. Um, um, it it probably was earlier, but from my experience, it felt that was because I, I started going down to Music House around. I think like ninety five, ninety six, maybe around then. So you're probably seeing like with the advent of like um, Blue Note and those that that kind of night. That's when it felt for yeah. me dubs were kind of becoming more of a thing because yeah because you know even for, for for us like from i think i said it and maybe i said it anyway that 
you know the nine the nine wasn't on on wasn't on dub that was a tp that was that was a promo that we we gave out so that you know if it was it was almost how many did you have do you remember uh we wouldn't have had that many i think we would actually back then tps we were probably doing about 50 50 maybe maybe yeah 50 something like that and i remember we actually went down to music house with them to give them out to people (laughs) really (laughs) um so yeah it kind of it just sort of yeah that sort of was really quite organic in its in its growth and um and yeah, it was it was never never cut to dub. I don't think yeah, we didn't even cut it to dub. We were, it was almost like this is what we wanted to release, and this is it's going to be this. And we didn't, and we weren't really in a position to be. We weren't DJing, so it wasn't a necessity for us. Do you know what I mean? Um, but we really none none of you were playing out much at all. Is that right? No, not really. We well, me and Jason were ha, had gigs as Future Forces, but we left that. Do you know what I mean? So we were mm. we were bad company. So we didn't become bad company. We didn't sign to an agency unique arts, artists until after like the the nine and possibly even um like planet dust or i can't even remember how long it was it was a good while do you know what i mean before mm. before we actually were on an agency i mean that's so different to now isn't it because yeah. as soon as like <laughs> that's it's what well, i mean i guess the difference is though that you know you could make a bit of money releasing records in those days right because i mean and i imagine you were selling bucket loads of those 12s yeah, yeah, we we were silly. We were do, we were doing all right. Do you know what I mean? I think we were averaging at least averaging around fifteen between fifteen and twenty thousand. I think. <laughs> I mean, that's just mind blowing, isn't it? Think yeah. about it now. Yeah, yeah. I was just, even just I was looking back at some records of my own the other, uh, the other day, just kind of like these limited limited to a thousand. I was like, Jesus, back <laughs> when a thousand, thousand was limited as well. Jesus. <laughs> you know yeah but yeah things that things have changed somewhat so we exactly so it's kind of like we didn't really i was like djing was kind of like it's added added extra do you know what i mean um yep. but i think as we we, we were kind of it was it was nice that almost like it was we couldn't go to every party so it's almost like it was nice once we were djing we were actually seeing the reaction of of people and i suppose in some ways you could it could you could be argued that that had an, had an adverse effect in some respects because it's kind of like the, the crowd reaction and you DJing it and you playing the music there and then informed what you'd go back and make in the studio. Do you know what I mean? So it was like... Yeah, absolutely. It can be kind of corrupting, can't it? I mean, I yeah. definitely experienced that. And I think you see it when when um, you know, when know a producer becomes well-known for tunes that he's just made in his bedroom without any, you know, without having that kind of... I guess, um, exposure mm. and their music changes when they go out on the road. You see it all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So it was like, we wasn't, it was, it was a strange sort of, it was very transitional, but bad company as a whole was, was a lot of transitions for us. Um, whether it be through, you know, how we started to where we ended up was <laughs> very different things. Yeah, it was quite it was quite a short period as well, wasn't it? But anyway, yeah. I, I, well, let's, we'll get onto bad company. Uh, let's, uh, just let's just take a step back for a moment. I want to go go back to that really early drum and bass jungle scene that when it came out of hardcore because um, you, as you said, you were in it from from the very start, right? Ninety two ish. That's. Uh, I had my first release in ninety two. Yeah. I mean, you. I mean, but presumably you were going out to raves and stuff. Yeah. That, or yeah. yeah so well, yeah, just yeah. give us a kind of snapshot of like of what it was like in this in like, you were in London, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, I was kind of in between Malvern and London. I used to, I grew up, I kind of like my teenage years were in a little town, little, um, 
Cotswold town called Malvern in Worcestershire. Um, so that's that was sort of where my beginnings. And I moved down to London. Um, I can't even remember. Maybe it was around ninety ninety one. Um, and my brother Steve Steve Spacek, he lived in London. We lived in Lewisham. Um, and I basically sort of ended up living living with him. And he used to just you know he used to take me out raving take me to like roast Astoria, you know, Orange. Um, and then we used to know there was a local crew, um, Desert Storm. I used to do things down at sort of Lee Valley. So that was really... Yeah, right. That Tottenham, was, right? Yeah. So that was more... The jungle was definitely coming through. I think it was just... it was Because I, I, I'm trying to remember if I actually sort of went out... I'd listened to, listened to hardcore as such, but never really went out to it. It was more kind of like, because London was definitely sort of like the whole jungle thing. And there was that sort of dark side jungle that came around as well. Um, it was pretty common to have like hardcore in one, one room and jungle in the other, I seem to recall. Yeah, those, yeah, those yeah. Places. So I was always, I was just a, in the jungle room. So I knew it was there. I think that my only real exposure to hardcore as such was more um, like when I used to, um, like, what was it called? Castle Morton. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, that was just literally just around the corner from where I used to live. So that, you know, and there was just Spiral Tribe DIY and all that all that lot were there. So that was that was more where I experienced hardcore. And it's the tapes, but I think I was sort of coming back and forth between there and London, and I was just sort of like, nah, I'm all about jungle, that's me. So, yeah, it was just, it was just, I just felt like it was just everywhere, literally everywhere. It's almost like there it was probably more pirate stations than there were legal stations at the time. It felt like right. on, on the radio, do you know what I mean? Um, what were the parties like? They were, I'm trying to think because I was pretty, you know, I was probably- You were kids. Yeah, well, yeah, but I was also out of my mind, do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, everyone was, right? That was the yeah. nature well, of the game. Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to think what I-, what I and I- I used to really enjoy going to Astoria. That was I used to some some reason I just loved that spot. Um, you mean Astoria on Tottenham Court Road? Is that right? Yeah, in, yeah, it was. No, it was on she Charing Cross. Yeah, it was on Charing Cross Road. Yeah, yeah, and they had they had didn't just have raves there. It was like they had loads of concerts and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, that just used to there was it was I used to always just love going to that one for some reason. I just got I just got memories of like Five O and who was that other guy? MC Chalky White and things like that. And then, actually, I remember actually a really good rave I went to in, I don't know if it's still there. It's not, it's not anymore. I think it's the, you know, Bristol Polytechnic when the Polytechnic was there. Um, right. That was, I think that's where I did my first peel, actually. Was, was, right. Was there. Um, what year was that? That would have been around the same time. That would have been early, sort of 91 1991 I think that would have been but yeah it was just like just going going out it was just getting getting you know getting the bus up there getting the night bus back it was it just literally jungle was a soundtrack for the whole journey which I mean whether it was people playing it out of their just these their headphones you could hear and coming out of cars and then it's just it was just yeah just so encompassing it was really weird in some ways, how much, how much, how enveloping it was as, as a scene. Um, it just felt, it was, it was, it, you definitely felt like you were part of something. 
Um, and yep. it had its, within it, obviously it had its factions, whether it was like, if you were into Rush FM or Cool FM or what was the other one, Shocking. You know, I was a, I was a Rush FM guy. Um, so that was, it was just that on constantly in the background, no matter what. <laughs> I mean, who were the, who were the DJs on there? For me, I was all about Red Ant. I think mean, that was his okay. name. Yeah. Red, Red Ant was my, was my boy. I, I can't can't remember any other any other names. I mean, you've done well to remember one. To be fair, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So, so there was a certain amount of crossover between radio DJs and raves, but like, I mean, not that much, right? I think it was. I'm right in saying that the the kind of rave DJs were a, a lot of the names that you still hear now. Is that is that fair? I mean, certainly people like Randall. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, it was definitely Ray, you know, Ray Keith, definitely like yeah, Randall, Kenny, Ken. All those guys, and but but I used to go to the the smaller ones to see, like when Rush FM or whatever put on a party or a Call FM, Call yeah Call I think Call FM did one on Curtain Road. There was a place opposite Plastic People. There was like a, a space. It wasn't. Yep. It's not the pub. I don't know what it is, but something down there was like a something down there. I think they they did a couple. They did some really good parties. Um, so yeah, it was. We used to. It, it's definitely like the, the the names that you still hear. Brocky, Brocky was a big one for um, big one for me. But yeah, there was the radio. I think yeah, the radio ones weren't so as prevalent as as you know the the usual names. Yeah. Um. So you're kind of like fairly new in London, but you. I mean, obviously, with your. I mean, Steve's your older brother, right? I'm. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. So, uh, his, I guess he was like showing you the ropes a little bit of the city. But how did you get into into making music then? Because obviously, it sounds sounds like it happened pretty quick, like getting to London and re- getting your first releases out. Uh, it was. I suppose it was pretty quick because I was I was in um I was doing a BTEC in real time computer studies, uh, down at Celeste. um, and basically, I kind of ended up. I mean, I got, I was living with my auntie and I got kicked out and my brother said I can right. come live with him. And he was in a, he was in a band called Stex just prior to that late eighties. And he was, he, I think this is just around, actually this was just around the top. Was he, he started SpaceX, I think then he was, I'm writing some uh, the, the early sort of, um, oh God, what's the Kavasha album. Yeah. So he was signed to Ireland at the time. And I think he, they basically he had like uh, he was given a publishing advance, which was which was an all right amount. And he basically was like, oh, "I need to, you know, I want to get some equipment." And me coming from computers, that was it wasn't too, too big a ask for me. So he was just kind of like, you know, he bought a sampler, bought you know S nine fifty, Atari five, whatever is it, five twenty, um, Cubase, that machine, and a little mixing, a little eight track cassette record like uh mixing mixing console kind of thing and yep. a pair of what do, yeah a pair of yamaha see if you still remember this yamaha ns10s and a yamaha sy22 keyboard yeah, uh also classic gear right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that was it so he was kind of like he was just doing his own thing but in his spare time it was kind of like we'd write because we were all going out as well we'd he'd we'd write sort of hardcore dance music so you know what i mean so it was more it was like a spare time hobby for him because he was sort of quite 
you know, he had he had to deliver an album to Ireland. So he, he was having to write music and write demos. And his stuff was very sort of like, it was electronic, but it was, there was a, an acoustic element to it because, you know, it had a drummer and a guitarist and whatnot. So he was writing demos mainly. And then when there was, when there was almost like when there was downtime, we had, we had spare time, we'd have a laugh and make sort of try and make these jungle or quite hard, hardcore-ish tunes. And yeah, we ended up, what was it we wrote? There was this Sewage Monsters we were called right. um that's, that's a decent name <laughs> yeah um and we ended up actually we ended up um borrowing some money from a real shady guy actually to pay for it um didn't didn't sell that well said shady guy wasn't happy and i mean he basically came he actually yeah he came and took came and took like the the the, mic, the mixing desk as as, as collateral as his Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it's like, I was, I was quite, quite annoying as well. It's like that, that actual release has been like on Discogs. It, it was going for silly money. And there was like this whole weird thing about it as well. I think like where someone had bootlegged it, had bootlegged oh. our, our release <laughs> and that, and was selling that. So a lot of people made money out of that tune as typically is the way, except us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? And I don't even, I still yeah. don't have enough a copy of it because I'm not paying those silly prices for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did so you you what you made a tune, pressed it up, and then and then what took it around the shops? Is that uh, how it was yeah? Working? We went to a few actually yeah we literally out the back of the car went to a few shops went to Black Market and then we went to um oh, what was that distributor's called? I think it was like Twenty Two Carat. I think they were called um, mm. Lloyd and Odette used to work there. I think and they and they. I they were they were doing raves as well in later on down the years. I think for some, I think they bought Innovation, mm. and they used to have and they were because Steve, cause Steve was really good friends with Mickey Finn as well. He used to live around the corner from us. Mm. Um, I remember him actually. I remember him coming round one time to Steve's. He had a I think he had a Beamer. He had a DAT machine in his Beamer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that is peak nineties. Yeah, really. yeah, deep night. He had a, and he played. Um, oh, what was his big tune? Some Justice. You remember that? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah I remember him coming absolutely. around and, and, pl- and playing it in the car, just like, a, you know, ridiculous sound system. It's just kind of like, <laughs> but it was just like, it was, he just felt, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> um, but I was always really quite quiet back then. And I think it was basically after the, after that sort of like, you know, this guy coming around and taking, taking um, Steve's, uh, mix, uh, mixing console it was kind of like it was left a sort of sour taste in our mouth and you know Steve was pissed off obviously we were just kind of all pissed off but I still wanted to sort of and I think I just as well I just um I got uh I had my first place my my own house so I managed so I'd, I'd moved out so I'd kind of started hanging uh, there was another guy in the group called Gary GMC blood for real um and he knew he knew Lenny Lenny the ice so that was how we kind of like me and Gary started. Um, he was like, I oh, know we can go out to Lenny's studio and do some stuff. Right. And this was what well, this was must have been after he'd had his massive tune. Yeah, right? this was after after We Are Um and this but this was like around the time when he was they they had a arms house crew had a stage uh Notting Hill Carnival. Um yep. I think they used to do the All Saints Road, which was quite it's, it's traditionally has been like the drum and bass. Right, yeah, the drum and bass venue. So they used to do that years ago. So we used to go go down there. Um, we were a part of that, and I used to sort of, yeah, just hang it. I just ended up sort of commuting and jumping the train to Leytonstone every day 
um, to go out there and start writing, you know, writing music up there. We, me and Gary started uh, calling ourselves the Dub Hustlers. And then actually we even did a few live PAs, if if you can call it that. It's just, you know, the, it was back in the day again of like putting a DAP machine on, putting some keyboards yeah. on stage yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and pretending to press some keys. Um, so we did a few of those as well at Desert Quite Store. Quite similar to how it works now, actually. Yeah, not too far. <laughs> so we did a couple, I remember we did a couple live PAs at um, Desert Storm, Lee Valley. So yeah, that was, what year, shit, what was that? What year was that? So yeah, it was kind of like, that was when I started getting to introduce to all of, um, cause there's a guy called Junior who started, had a label called Do or Die. And he had, he used to, he was like, he, he knew like Chris and Paul and all that and Leon down at Music House. So that was when I yep. started getting introduced to that world as well. <laughs> so it was almost like all these, all these incremental steps kind of introducing me into the kind of like the, what is now become sort of folklore, I suppose, law of, you know, of DMB um in these places just to uh just to clarify music house was i mean i know it is the place where people cut dub plates but did they do mastering there as well yeah so they they'd mastered a few like i think paul chris or one of the two mastered a couple of my early releases the the do or die poison records uh there was yeah there was the dub hustlers one i think they did so yeah they used to do yeah cut dubs and master as well so they were mastering uh, traditionally they were mastering a lot of sort of like the uh, reggae reggae acts and the you know the uk uk based reggae artists would go there um, yeah i remember going there for the first time and just yeah just Im- immediately having that kind of reggae thing just like it was like almost like the stereotypical uh reggae recording studio that place yeah. it was it was mad yeah it's a great place i miss it um yeah so yeah, I still again. What what year are we talking now? This would have been because this was all prior. Because I didn't really start going to. I didn't go to Trouble on Vinyl Renegade Hardware until about ninety four. I don't think. So right. yeah, so ninety three because there was the <coughs> there was the um, Carnival ninety three statistics. That's a release. That was a release on uh, on Arms House Recordings. So it would have been not too long after that. Because then also, what's his name? Because Timmy, Timmy Magic and PSG were all part of that crew as well. Uh, right, who subsequently became big names in Garage. Yeah, and Spoonie and those guys, yeah. Yeah, because it was like, yeah, weird little sort of hanging, not so much hanging out, but I'd be literally going up there every day, seeing them, but just, be, I'm, in, I'm in the studio, just writing tunes, just trying to hone my craft, do you know what I mean? Not really knowing mm. what's going on, just but just enjoying being a part of it all. Um, and what kind of kit did they have at the studio about around then? Uh, he had, that would have been the S, I think we'd moved moved up to the S1000 by that time. The Akai S1000. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it was mainly, everything was all based around that. I can't even remember what desk he had. I just know it was, it was still an Atari and it was just that and the, and the S1000. And then whatever, you know, whether we were recording a VHS v- a video, a cassette deck to record, you know, sample from, a record deck to sample from. And then, yeah, that was about it. There wasn't really much in the way of outboard. <laughs> right. I mean, that 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 sampler is um, must have been responsible for, like, the amount of classic records over the years. It's incredible. Like, um, and it's using floppy disks and all that, right? Yeah, using floppy disks. And it didn't have that much sampling time, especially the 950. That was... No, it probably had like three seconds or something. Yeah, right? I, think, I think we're literally, I think we're talking kilobytes back then. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> um, to the point, because it was like we had to, I remember, you know, 
you know, having to play, when sampling breaks off records, but, you know, record them in at 78 and things like that, just to be able to squeeze right. that, you know, a bit of extra time out of it and then, you know, just slow it down in the sampler. Yeah. <laughs> so was there a, um, you know, you talked about like honing your craft and kind of, um, you know, putting, I guess, putting the hours in until you can reach a point at which you're kind of happy with what you're doing. But was there a, like a, like a, like a turning point that you can look back on and say, oh, okay, that was the moment that it started happening or was it more of a kind of like gradual thing? Uh, I think there, there was a probably, I, I think as, um, there was a couple sort of points where I like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the right path. I think when, um, I did a, I did a release as Debridge on TOV. I think it was, um, oh God, I'm terrible. I can't even remember the name of my own tunes. Uh, and, uh, was that the first Debridge release or when, when does that name like date from? The first, yeah. When does it date from? I was called, I was called, I was called Debridge from the very, you know, back in the Sewage Monsters days, but it never, it never came on a record until actually until, um, the do or die. Or I think it was crash test. I think it was called a track called crash test. Um, and as MCID was on the other side, he was, I think he used to DJ on call FM. But I think when um, Keep It Real, that was a track, it came out on TLV and I, and I did a track and then Crust or Crust remixed it under gang related name. And I was like, uh, and that was like a big moment for me. Do you know what I mean? Like someone I who I'd looked up was remixing one of my tunes. Um, and then I think when we, when me and Jason sort of, because me and Jason were down there separately doing stuff as he was Maldini, I was Debridge and we were TOV, but we were going to, um, you know, this was a time of Blue Note and whatnot. And we were all going there and being influenced by, you know, what was coming out of that place. So that's metal, the Metalheads Night at Blue yeah. Note. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, you know, we were going down there and that was having an effect. So we'd be coming back to the studio literally after, you know, and writing stuff. And then it was like, well, none of the stuff that we're writing together is going to work on TOV. It's not that kind of label. So, you know, we made them pretty much basically made them start Renegade Hardware. And then that was, when was that? That would have been late 94, early 95, I think. Um, yeah, so I was, I was listening to those records today and they are very sort of distinctive sonically, certainly compared to like the majority, I guess, of what was going on in jungle at that time it's it's very kind of like minimal almost it's kind of super stripped back so i mean does that i mean how, how like how did or do you do i mean do you remember how that kind of developed or was it like uh yeah was it something that you wanted to or was it i mean obviously sometimes in the studio things just come out but like yeah and how, how did that stuff like come about i think like i said i think you know definitely bluno had an influence and then also what um uh, like no U-turn had a, had a big influence as well because we were right, yeah, really yeah. really into what was going on over in that camp because Nico Nico and Clayton they were like you know they were good good mates and Metro Store wasn't that far away where the, where they were set up so you know and Nico would come down to the studio and sort of engineer for us and we'd go to his studio and sort of learn from him as well so I think that sort of what you know what Ed Rush and Trace and was was were doing was like yeah we me and Jason connected with um right because their early records are on on no turn right yeah so like you yeah. know like Subway and Kilimanjaro and Guncheck 
yeah. you know, sick, amazing tunes. Um, and just, <coughs> just but even, I mean, even, even that stuff is, um, I mean, that was, I remember that at the time and it's, it's really, um, it's super dark, that stuff. It's really like, pretty aggressive music, but it's, but it's not, it doesn't have that kind of minimal thing, which I, you know, which, which your early stuff, I mean, actually a lot of your stuff down, down the years has got that kind of super stripped back kind of aesthetic about it. But yeah, I mean, that really struck me as something that must have been like very, very, like, I think, but if, if you, li- but if you listen to their stuff, it is, it is pretty minimal. It's just maybe just sonically, it doesn't sound it. But there's not much going on, do you know what I mean? It's a break, a bass, and a stab. Do you know what I mean? And it's about getting those things to work. And that's that's what I used to like. Do you know what I mean? Especially like with with, with the way Nico worked, it was you know, him on the mixing desk. He'd let the others sort of get on with it on the samplers and, and the arranging and everything. But he was all about on the mixing desk, which has always stuck with me and just kind of plugging in guitar pedals and you know, they, they weren't really about, they weren't really about presets. Do you know what I mean? I think if you listen to their stuff, a lot of the sound repeats, a lot of stuff repeats itself in terms of the sound used, but it doesn't sound the same because he was always processing it differently every time. Do do you know what I mean? Um, Which I, which really, really um, stuck with me. Um, And just working, working with what you've got. So I think that definitely had an influence and what Ed Rush and what those guys were doing. And especially, you know, with the, the step that they were coming with and just these different kind of the rhythms and stuff like that. So we did, what was the first release? It was like Flash Gordon Jeep Beats, I think. And I think that, and going back to the the, the other question of, you know, seminal moments, it was like, we, you know, we sent it to Groove Rider and he was like, yeah, this is some, I think he named I think he even named it. I think he named it Jeep Beats. That was his. Right. He named the track. So that it, it, that was like another kind of like, oh right, sick. You know, riders recognise what who we are and what we're doing. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's. I mean, getting that validation from someone who you really look up to is. I mean, there's no substitute for it, is there? Yeah, exactly. Starting out. Yeah, exactly. So and then it was like, I think the first real was when we did. Um, Dead by Dawn, because that was because weirdly there was like because we were we were part of obviously TOV was considered to be jump up, and then Renegade Hardware was more you know the tech step or whatever you want to call it at the time, and the DMB had always had a lot of sort of infighting over the years of of different styles. Um, like the kind of subgenres and the ways people went. I wanted to ask you about that actually. Like, yeah, how, so how, how did you all kind of see those labels? Like, because I mean, it's they seem to the kind of casual observer sometimes to be quite arbitrary. And certainly with the um, you know, the intelligent label has got a bit of a bad name now. And like, yeah. So, so how did how did all that stuff pan out? It was it. Uh, we used to me and Jason used to just sort of sit back and laugh, but it was kind of like. You know, because Renegade, I think Renegade had a lot of all of that thing covered because they had Trouble and Vinyl, which was the jump up. Renegade, which was the quote unquote intelligent. You know, they had a guy called Shogun who was like, who, you know, Bookham was really into all his stuff. So that he had that side covered. And then he had the Renegade hardware stuff as well. So he had all the, all three, the, the three distinct angles of DMB covered. Um, but yeah, there was just like, we you saw this sort of split happening of of kind of like whether it was like what was going on down at Blue Note and then say what's people like Hype on and Darren J and Nikki Black Market were playing was seen as 
almost it was almost like the 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 DMB. It was almost like it's when drum and bass the the term drum and bass was being coined somewhat. It, yeah. was, it was like it was trying to differentiate itself from that other other side of the scene. Yeah, that in itself was quite contentious. I seem to remember at the time. Yeah, there was there was a lot of sort of people being pissed off with each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a lot of round table meetings. I think there was. I think it's. I, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. There was like a famous, wasn't there, of a a cool FM round table. Of, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. So can, <laughs> can you enlighten me a little bit, enlighten all of us uh, uh, as to what I can't. Down? I can't remember. I just remember. I just do remember. I think Goldie was on there, and with Goldie was just being Goldie, <laughs> just pissed <laughs> off a lot of people. Um, uh, and I think yeah, it just I, I I can't even remember what he said, but there must be a recording of it somewhere. Someone's got it. Um, but I do. I do remember. Like I think like. I think like shy effects f- sort of musically fell out. I think he maybe, he maybe said something about shy because it was around, because it was it around the time of MB as well. But was it kind of like this kind of meeting and, and, and other meetings, no doubt that went down, was it kind of an attempt to sort of lay down laws or, or some kind of like, you know, uh, like rules in some kind of a, kind of a way? Because that's the kind of, that's the impression I had. But I'm, I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing which, which could quite easily be, yeah. you know, spun out to be not accurate. Well, I was only, I was only privy to one of the later meetings that I actually went to, which was the, um, the, is the, is drum and bass getting too fast meeting? <laughs> oh wow really <laughs> yeah. amazing oh. you know so and, that, <laughs> and what what was the what was the you know how did that uh how was the decision i think we, uh, most of the people there agreed that it was getting too fast but and but so there was like this idea put out of like we should all if we all write five tunes at 164 bpm and we all share it, then basically that's, that's like, you know, we can pretty much start another, start a new subgenre or scene or whatever, or start, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, it was like, there was, there was a lot of people there. There was a lot of artists, DJs, labels, distributors. And, um, I, I don't think anyone really took it too seriously. Um, right. it just kind of, it was, it was, it was just, it was an, it was almost like it was a nice idea, but it just... <laughs> this is amazing. I've just got this like, kind of vision of like, you know, someone sitting as a chairman and kind of like, you know, reading the minutes and like... <laughs> I've still got the original, I've still got the original piece of paper from it. Wow, but, what the uh, agenda? The, yeah, it was just kind of like a thing someone printed out and give give out. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've, got, I've still got it somewhere. I have a look at it every now and then just for a chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, there was always like... So sort of circling back, there was always these splits within the scene that was happening. And, you know, people from this side didn't really, didn't like what Jump Up was doing. They were calling it cheesy and clown step and all these whatever, do you know what I mean? And it was all the other dark side devil business on the the other side. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But it was like, it was a weird, I remember a track Dead by Dawn was one of, was one of the tracks that got played on both sides of the scene. Um, Right. And that was really, for me, like a really big moment as well. Just kind of like, it wasn't just a a track that Ryder and all those guys were playing. It was a track that Hype and and all those guys were playing as well. Um, so that felt really refreshing. And the same thing happened with the, with the Nine. There was, a, I think there was a bit of a split and the Nine was suddenly a tune that was getting played across the whole scene. 
Can I just let me just clarify um, how you how you're splitting there? So, um, am I right in thinking that like Groove Rider is a bit more of a kind of serious, well, quote unquote, serious stuff, and Hype is a bit more of a jump up side? Is that is that how you were splitting it there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, because yeah, okay. so, obviously Ryder had his um, Ryder Fabian Ryder. I think by this time they'd had their Radio One show going on as well. So that was like a you know it was a, it was a real thing to try and you know have Ryder play your tune on the radio. And things like that um uh, so yeah so it was that you know that track getting played across across the scene was just a, a real seminal moment for me and i think and it probably wasn't until the next one the next big one was obviously the nine and and then it was like oh actually i can i can actually sort of make a career out of this so, so well, i mean the nine is one of the biggest drum bass tunes ever right so yeah pretty much <laughs> probably <laughs> But it's almost like it felt. It, I remember it was almost what. So it was ninety two, and the nine came out. What December ninety eight? Nine no ninety ninety nine two thousand. Yeah. So it was like eight years of eight years of graft before until I actually got to a point where it was actually oh, I've made it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd done my apprenticeship. Um, right. So- One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So let's um yeah let's okay let's talk about by company then seeing as we've we found ourselves here how did how did that like come about in in the first place and what was the idea behind it well it came about because basically Clayton tried to because again we were hitting this time where where um, there was interest from bigger labels not maybe not so much majors but sort of bigger independents and I think Clay- so Clayton sorry Clayton was the guy who ran Trouble on Vinyl and all yeah, that Clayton, all those labels yeah Clayton and Mark. Um, and I think he, I, I get the feeling he got wind that someone, he kind of realised that he hadn't signed us down, he hadn't locked us down in any kind of deal. Um, so he made an attempt to to sign me and Jason and Kane and who was this? there was Genotype, um, DJ Red, uh, I think there was anyone else, I think there was, might have been a few other people as well, and tried to sign us in this deal and we were just like, and he he kind of gave us an ultimatum. This is like, you either sign it or go. So we were like, well, you're not really giving us a choice, mate. Because I think at the time as well, because it wasn't like he wanted to sign Future Forces. He wanted to sign my name, Darren White. So anything I did after that, it's just kind of like, nah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> not really, that's not really how it works, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's not happening. So we we left and Dan Fresh had come down to the studio prior to that, actually. And he was sort of, he'd brought some tunes down. He just had a release on him and Vegas had a release on Matrix's label called Otto's way. I think, 
uh, on Metro. Um, so we were kind of doing doing stuff as well. And we'd done a, a release called The Code, which was a pretty big tune as well at the time, which we famously wanted to put under the name Bad Company, but Clayton didn't like the name. And then... As so that was a collab, sorry, that was a collab with the three of you? Yeah, that was a free, yeah, the three of us. But in he, yeah. he, out of spite, left me off the, off the, 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 um, the label, off the, off the sleeve. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, whether it was the out of spite. Trouble or, was brewing then. Yeah, okay. it was just kind of like, it was just things, you know, this, this isn't happening. Um, so, yeah, we all left basically. And Dan was like, you know, come to ours and come to, come to mine and let's carry on just sort of writing music. So we pretty much spent the summer of I think it was the the summer of 98 or summer of 99 yeah 98 writing just writing music just going up to uh, Maidenhead so um what did what did leaving actually mean so they had they had a, they had a studio which you were using to make all the music is that right at Trouble on Vinyl yeah well we were kind of like they'd yeah yeah it's all sort of, sort of slowly coming back to me as well actually it was like it, we because it, it was it was difficult because it was like they we they, there was sort of money coming in as such. Do you know what I mean? We I think I just started DJing as well, and then Clayton Clayton obviously that you know he was putting on the nights down at the end, so we would you know we would we would DJing and getting paid and a certain, you know there was a certain amount of money coming in that we could survive off, as well as I think I was on the dole at the time as well, and he was uh, he basically had. We were like, well, you got, you need to pay us all this money. We just had uh, all these releases, all like quantum out quantum mechanics album and all this stuff, and we hadn't been paid for it. So they were kind of almost like holding our our money to ransom as well. So me and Jason, we were like, all right. I remember we were kind of like, well, we need to, you know, we're going to need to get this money. So we, I suppose we kind of tricked them into paying us our money back. So we said, right, all right. We'll, have, we'll talk to you. We'll have some talks, but in the good faith, do you know what I mean? You've got to, you've got to pay us our money, and then we'll and we'll sign. I think we even said if you pay us our money, we'll sign. And then as soon as we, as soon as they did, we just like, yeah, fuck, fuck you, mate. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, no, I'm not having any of that. Because initially it was going to start a label with uh, DJ Red and Kane. I can't remember. We had a name and everything, but we just felt like that wouldn't have been. It almost like sonically, it was kind of like, well, me and Jason were were on one side of the scene, Kane and Red were on the other side. To have a joint label, it, it would if almost like maybe it'd be a bit confusing. Um, yeah. So, so leaving was like, I guess a, a sort of bit of a wrench, but then, but you were, I guess, confident that there were there was something immediate that you could just go into. No, I don't. I don't think I was confident. I just think it was. It was almost like I didn't have a choice. Do you know what I mean? But I was always like we were and I, you know i think i actually got a job around that time finally <laughs> i got I was, I was i think i was working as a kitchen porter in a, a mexican restaurant in crystal palace i remember that for a little while and then i think i worked in the produce to put no no that was before, before that I, I was gonna i worked in sainsbury's for a little bit um and then but i think i was pretty much i was i was signing on then and back then when it was just seemed to be a lot easier kind of like you you tell the government you wanted to make music and they'd couldn't really find you anything to do so let's just tell you to come back in two weeks <laughs> you know so um i think we because uh, once we got the money it was like uh, that was able to tide us over and we bought a little bit of equipment we had enough to sort of buy ourselves our own little setups i think that's all right um but i just i think that we basically we, when we was working with dan dan had a mate 
he was loaded basically and it was another situation of kind of like borrowing money from someone to kind of get the setup that we needed so we borrowed like two grand from his mate and bought spent a grand on a pair of Mackie HR824s and then I think we spent the rest on getting the record pressed and getting the nine yeah I think we got the did we, I don't think yeah did, I'm not sure if we had a distribution deal then I think we can't we might have even done it ourselves um, so like to, to what extent was there a like a sort of plan for the project like before because um, obviously the, the, you know, when the nine came out that was a huge impact but you know, to what extent had you kind of thought through what you wanted to do sort of artistically before that as a group we 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 didn't really we didn't work like that it was almost like it was just kind of i don't think we it was not the kind of thing we sort of sat down and discussed or anything or anything we just wanted to just make music um and if we had a kind of there was a connection there in terms of what we were into and what how we wanted to express it so i think it was just let's just just write and write and write and do and just do stuff do you know what i mean not really the outcome didn't really was wasn't of any importance, which is still which is something I'm, which is still true to to you know today with me. It's just kind of I don't really think about the end goal at all. We just want to write music for the sake of writing music and enjoying the process. And then once we've got all this stuff, we sort of you know sit back and be like, which one do you think is which? Which do we? What, which one should we put out? We should put something out. Which one should we put out? Yeah, we all like that one. Cool. What should we put on the other side? Yeah, that. You know what I mean? It was almost as simple as that it was there's there's no there's no hard and fast plans um so so i was but there been any change in the way you were working in the studio um because there were four of you by that point when at what point did, did all that come together it was it was difficult at, at times definitely do you know what i mean but we kind of like, I, the one thing we did say at the beginning was but we you know we wanted to start this thing this group called bad company but it almost like it didn't matter who wrote the tunes. It was like it all goes under under the name, and we'll put who wrote the tunes on the, in the in the fine print kind of thing. But in terms of bad company, can be any combination of of, four, of the four of us. So that was the only real sort of prerequisite, so to speak, um, of any of anything we done. So, but it was. I think the, when we did inside the machine that that album, that was cool. That was just us hanging out in. in in the studio which was in dan's attic just literally yeah literally for for a whole summer just writing 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 and then we and that you know at the end of it this is you know we came out with came out with this album it was it was when i think when dan moved his studio to we moved to Hampstead. that's that's when that's when things changed a bit in where like the studio became more one player do you know what i mean it was like it's one because it was in Dan's house. We'd have to travel up to it, but it was set up to kind of work around him. Do you know what I mean? Because it was in his. It was more more his setup that we were, we were adding bits. We all had bits bits of equipment that were part of it and collectively, but it was definitely set up around him. So that's when also when I think you know the whole BC sound changed as well because it was. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it, it changed quite a lot actually in a fairly short period of time. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think the whole sound of drum and bass um, changed as well, though, in, in that period. So it was probably a reflection of that as well as you know just you know, just the, the different um, methods of working and, and all that. But so I mean, 
by the sound of it, well, I'm I'm pretty sure you were a little bit, you felt a little bit alienated by the way the music developed generally. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I was just, I just wasn't in it. Do you know what I mean? I think, mm. yep. I think it was um, a few, a, f- a few different factors. I think it's like it was the advent of of AIM, AOL, Instant Messenger. You know, people sending. There was this. Now there was this ability to send music to people very quickly. And also, and also, the advent of CDJs. So it was kind of like the whole, the technology was sort of like changing as we were, you know, as we were developing as a group. So it, it you know, it got to the stage where I'd be, you know, because I lived in South London, and you know, Dan's up in Hampstead in North London. Jason was also in South London. You know, we'd it was we'd start a tune. Okay, cool, sounds great. Go home come back by the time you come back a lot of it's changed and Andy C had it already do you know what I mean it's so it was like and he was like a bit like but what about uh, yeah but yeah Andy says he really likes it yeah of course Andy says he really bloody likes it because it's a PC tune and he's got it before anyone else and it's you know what I mean and now you've you've given it to him on Thursday night he's now down at Music House getting it cut no doubt (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like that was taking over, and it just became really it, it, because it, it, the instantaneousness of it all. It became really difficult to work in that situation, um, and I just found myself sort of in the studio, looking over Dan's shoulder and just being like, oh, "I can't be asked with this." Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, uh, but, but were you presumably you you've been playing a lot of shows as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I was really bad, which may be the way, actually, thinking about it from a psychological point of view, that may have something to do with why I have a really bad time playing my own music. <laughs> Just because I didn't really used to play the BC stuff. Jason did. Do you know what I mean? I'd play the stuff in between. That was when we, when we do, because we'd go out in pairs in the back to backs. Yeah, I'd be playing other stuff, other people's stuff rather than ours. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, it, that was another thing that stuck with me from that. Uh, Red Bull interview you were saying that DJing kind of turned into a sort of competition to get the most rewinds and now oh god yeah <laughs> you won't be that I'd have to say that completely resonated with my experience in as a dubstep DJ and really what made me want to stop doing it and want to you know play house and techno and all that stuff was just the the kind of like arms you know um <laughs> rewind arms race you know yeah just, oh. oh it was bullshit Do you know I mean I hate I hated it and it's it was and it was, but it was, it was annoyingly, it was like, you, you knew that everyone in on the night was going to play the same tunes that were going to get rewound. So it's, it was, yeah, it just became really boring. Yeah. I I think I, I struggled though, because towards the end, because obviously I was earning really good money, but I was ultimately really unhappy at the same time. Um, just not enjoy, not enjoying it, and it was it was it was a difficult transition towards the end of BC as well. Um, but yeah, just that whole dub, dub plate wars, and it's just kind of like this, this is really this is yeah, it's really boring. This whole need to kind of because it was because it was also it was really getting to uh, um, magnifying this whole thing of like oh that tunes that tune's um big what have they done in that tune that's made it big 
<laughs> so then, do you know what I mean? So then it became a, it be, then it became a thing of like because we were the big thing. Suddenly, at certain points as well, we sounded like really bad versions of ourselves. Do you know what I mean? Because other other people were doing what we were were, were doing at the time. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, and, and that still goes on now. I think within within DMB and maybe just in music in general, it's kind of like is it sort of self-referential kind of need to kind of like oh what's big let me do a version of that oh uh, yeah i mean people copy each other absolutely and when something's successful loads of people <laughs> always jump on it don't they like, yeah and i guess that's the that's the problem with being a an influential act which you guys obviously were like massively you know yeah so yeah so but i think in some ways it was probably good that we were kind of like it was we burned bright for a fair few for about what 99 to 2002 so we only had like a three year three year run yeah and then we got out of there (laughs) (laughs) so did you i mean did you find yourself kind of falling out with the genre a little bit during that during that period oh yeah i fucking hated it um (laughs) yeah i was just i just couldn't listen to it i couldn't it was doing doing my brain in weirdly i think maybe i'm going through the same thing in a minute it's not i just don't hate it it's just kind of like it's just not it's not exciting it didn't excite me anymore do you know what i mean so that, but thankfully back then, it's like my brother was around. So that's what I used to go and, you know, go and hang out with him. And he was, you know, see what he was into. He was, he was, I think he was writing um, vintage high tech for K7 at the time. And I, you know, I, I helped with a couple of tracks on that. And it was hang, just, it was nice just hanging out with him. And he sort of introduced me to Dilla. You know, he was getting all these because Dilla was sending him like beat CDs because he'd done, Dilla had done the, the remix of Eve. So suddenly there was this whole other world of kind of like what I, you know, because I just like to be excited. Do you know what I mean? And it was just like, wow, what is, what the hell's going on here? Um, yeah, well, I mean, going from like, you know, a pretty, um, I don't know, a pretty stiff drum and bass scene to, to Jay Dilla's, a, you know, that's a breath of fresh air, right? <laughs> yeah. To put it mildly. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was amazing just kind of hearing all this, all that stuff and just having this sort of emotional and musical reset and this sort of, sort of reflecting on what it, I'd been a part of and what I was doing and what I needed to do going forward. And it, and I just didn't, and it wasn't that, do you know what I mean? It wasn't what was going on within BC and drum and bass. Well, it was, I think it yeah. was, but I just, I just found that that, that side of DMB, that it was, it was almost like rather than it being a, I think this is when the, there was another transition of splits where, where before you had a style split, whether it was jump up and then, you know, tech step or whatever you, the word you want to use, there was now a sort of a monetary split of commercial and underground. Do you know what I mean? That that was what that was the new split within DMB, and I didn't really f- didn't f- I just wasn't resonating with what was going on with the this it, it has it wasn't quite quite commercial in sense of like you know um, top of the pops yet, but it was commercial in the sense it was bigger crowds obviously, you know it means the the sort of festival bookings and things like that were coming in. It was becoming that kind of. It was. It was the infancy of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I guess that's. I guess that's the probably the moment that I. I would. I think at the time I kind of saw it as being a bit of a sort of precarious moment, and you know, comparing it to Garage again, like the the kind of early two thousands moment in Garage, which it, which really didn't really didn't recover from at all. But 
with drum and bass that that eventually kind of worked itself out in a way but i mean that that moment of um yeah those just i guess when you whenever you have like a lot of people jumping on something and and suddenly there's more money and more exposure and just like mm. that's that's always that always puts a lot of pressure on the people doing making the music i guess yeah so i just kind of like when i i think coming out of working with working with my brother and being influenced by say, say dilla wajid bling 47 and all these kind of things it was like i then found more of a there was a, I found more of a connection with <clears throat> the other godfather, Fabio, and what he was doing. Do you know what I mean? Really? Okay, right, yeah. Down at um down at the end with uh what was it, what's the name of his night again? Jesus Christ. You know, I'm I'm also blanking on it, but I went to it many times. <laughs> yeah, down you know, down at the bar in, in uh in the end. Um and then, you know, with Calibre and what he was doing and that resonated with me more. And I could hear the similarities between you know the samples the sample choices and and musically what was was what was going on i I just felt more of a connection with that because i still loved i loved dmb as a genre and what i felt it was it was and can do do you know what i mean what it was it's i i was always kind of really inspired by the fact that it could piece together so many different sources do you know what i mean so many different almost like you could piece together something from a, a hundred different genres and create a drum and bass tune so that was that was something that i kind of like i want i felt like i wanted to explore more so it felt like there was still more that dmb could do for me or, or how i wanted to express my version of it and i yeah i found that in over in yeah over in a, a creative you know with fabio and those guys um and i think when did i when did i because that was 2003 and i was still working with I, I think i was still living with with um jay and mick at the time up in gold is green but i knew and we were still we were still as well we were still doing bad company tunes we were still like because dan had started breakbeat chaos was it called with um adam f and he was off doing his own thing because this also this was after the whole thing with vinyl distribution like going down and owing us a ridiculous amount of money so yeah let's 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 just talk about that for a moment because that's that's a story in itself and and the way uh um distribution kind of like resolved itself out of that so so vinyl distribution was was the dominant yeah. um distributor of of certainly of of john bass records right in the 90s and yeah. early 2000s so so what so what happened <sighs> what happened <laughs> <laughs> I I only know bits of it. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like I know that there was some sort of there was criminals involved and people owed people money, which is the usual thing with all this kind of shit. And then I think they just ended up using the company's money to pay off <laughs> any money that was owed. Um, so a Ponzi scheme, basically. Uh, something like that. It was. It got. It got pretty dark. I think. Uh, it's almost like it doesn't feel like my story to tell. Do you know what I mean? Um, well, I mean, but you got your fingers burned though, right? Pretty badly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, you know, it was like uh, 120 grand or something. I think, I think uh, also, who else got, I know Ed and Optical Virus got burned for, must, they must have been about, had been about 50, 60 grand or something like that. Um, and who the, or numerous other labels, do you know, you know what I mean, as well. But in a way, it was our own fault. Do you know what I mean? As well, at the same time, as it was like we weren't, we didn't, we weren't managing ourselves properly. We were so caught up in the, 
in the moment, so to speak. And we were, you know, we were earning great money as, as DJs. It's almost like that, the, the money from the records didn't really count anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like we could, we didn't f- really think about it. We didn't, we were, we didn't really care how many we were selling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. So let me ask you, let me ask you, um, out of, out of that, um, situation with, with vinyl distribution, SRD and, and SD Holdings sort of emerged and became the two sort of biggest players in distribution. Yeah. And I, you, you, and you were, you'd started Exit by then, I think. Is that right? Yeah, you had, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. And I, yeah. and you were, you were with SRD, weren't you? Cause I was, I was, we were with, um, we were with SD Holdings with Hot Flush, and what I wanted to ask you was like, what was the like the con- what was the contribution that that those distribution companies made to your label? Because I know that um, SD were, were really, really they were a really big thing in the development of Hot Flush, and it got me thinking. Um, you know, comparing that input to the way distribution companies work now with 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 labels and the degree to which it's changed so like what what kind of input did srd have and then how do you think about how um how that kind of paradigm between distribution companies and 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 labels um how's how's that changed over time well i think it was almost like with srd it was the first time obviously we, we were actually paying attention do you know what i mean to to the releasing of records before it was just kind of like okay get the records master it and get someone to do the artwork do you know what I mean? But this time it was kind of like it was more going have meetings with them, discuss like discuss releases and release release dates. And it was almost like, well, actually, you're running a business here. Do you know what I mean? It's not it's fun and everything, but there's a serious side to it, and you need to really be aware of that side of it. So I think SRD and it was also it was like it was nice to really because vinyl distribution were quite faceless in some respects as well. Do you know what I mean? We didn't, because they were, well, they were based in Reading. I think we knew there was a few heads down there, but we didn't really know the ins and outs of the, of the business and how it was run. But, you know, with people like uh, Rico, Paul and Dan, um, down at SRD, I think it was Emma, it was down at Emma Wildchild. It was like, there was, it felt like there was a connection there with, with the people who are actually putting our records into the stores. And the same with um, ST Holdings and Chris, he was he was really passionate about the music, so it was. I think that was um, because you know also as well where with vinyl we were paying for everything ourselves as well. So they you know, but with with SRD and SD Holdings, it was this whole thing of like them getting a, a pressing and distribution deal. Do you know what I mean? So so this was someone putting their own money into your development. And having faith in what you do as an artist to be able to, you know, to think that you can sell records. So that was, that was, a, you know, a definite shift and and a, a new way to look at what what was going on. Because um, I think we, after what happened with, because now, yeah, because after what happened with Vinyl, we went, you know, we went to SRD. Um, and then again, when, it's when BC let, bro- broke up, it was kind of like, you know, went to speak to them and, you know, have, have, if they can offer me a and d deal. Did I, I don't know, did I distribute with SRD or did I go straight to ST Holdings? I can't even remember. According to that, uh, <laughs> according to that Rebel interview, you were, you were with SRD at the time. Okay. There's <laughs> 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 so much going on, Paul, mate. Do you know what I mean? Um, Yes. Well, we well we were with ST and Chris. Yeah, Chris Parkinson, who you just referred to, was 
just incredibly helpful and I, yeah. you know, I probably wouldn't be here now to be honest if it wasn't for him um and I think he he manages caliber now I think is that right yeah yeah he looks after he looks after Dom but the, it was like you know they had their own problems as well it's just like it's always something it's always something do you know what I mean um, well I mean what I think what happened with ST is that the, you know the the advent of digital music happened and like so many other businesses in music they you know weren't quite prepared for it you know yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and no. They kind of, in some ways, they weren't. But I think Chris, Chris was, Chris was, um, and but his brother wasn't. So maybe because we'd done uh, when we did a bunch of cuts, which was our first sort of like digital thing, which was you know just who was it? It was like Solar Signature Bass Bin Thirty One, or you know, all of us, all of our labels being digitally available through this. Through this, uh, what were they called? I I think music. Do you remember them? Right. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. There was like this. this yeah. There was. There was Very there was, early kind of aggregator. Yeah. Right. Super early. But, um, yeah. I think I went. I went with S. When, when I started Exit, I think maybe I can't. Sh- I'm not sure when the shift was, but the, I think it, it was more like I just felt that ST was a better fit with what I was trying to do. Oh, because I remember because SRD were definitely more. Again, there was that like I see, you know, that commercial underground split. Right. SRD were more geared towards that and seemed to be more con- con- like John Knight and those guys seemed to be more concerned about the money. Rico, not so much. Rico was definitely he was a music man, more concerned about numbers, whereas ST was more concerned about you know the the substance, the music. So that's why you know I think that's why I went with them in the end. So, I mean, so the second half of my question was like, like, how's that changed? Do you think over time, in terms of the way distribution companies um, like contribute to the development of labels, like now? Like, so, I mean, just in the in the context of of exit, how's it changed, and how do you think it would be like if you were starting now? I'm not sure how it would be because I, I, you know, thankfully, you know, I've got to the stage where I again is sort of like you when you take take note. Of, take a bit more pay, pay attention of the business, you actually realise that, you know, as convenient as a P&D deal is, financially it doesn't always doesn't always make sense as well. Do you know what I mean? It's like it, it's better to do it, if you can afford to, press press it yourself and just have them distribute it. Um, so that was that was kind of like something I, when I, once I got a label manager on board, as, you know, we kind of like, we sat down, I was like, right, we need to be doing this ourselves. So that, that's uh that's definitely changed the way the business has run um and we did that quite early on quite almost bef- before like you know spotify and the whole digital revolution came along but i think it will always be i think there the role of a distributor shouldn't ever be sort of discounted in terms of like its development of of scenes because they were the ones sort of putting the money in you know behind these artists and behind these acts before there was an ability for people to be able to get their music out to people so easily. So if, you know, if it, you know, it's not, it's not cheap, like mastering and pressing a record. Um, if you're just, you know, it's just starting out, it's, it, you know, but they had the capital to do that for, for people. And I think their role within within um music dance music in the uk as a whole shouldn't be understated you know in like what the labels that they funded and and helped create as um is is massive do you know what i mean so i think if if i started now 
Uh, yeah, I, I probably, I don't know. Do, do you even need them now? It's as sad as it is. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Well, I guess I guess the way I look at it is um, like back in those days, like a big part of what they were offering was a relationship with the shops. So like the way... The way sales worked is like, um, yeah, there'll be a, at each shop there'd be someone, a buyer who'd be on the phone each week to distributors, and they would tell tell them, you know, what they had and what was, you know, and they and they would sell the record for you, I guess, to an extent. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I suppose like like the equivalent of that now is is pitching to to DSPs, right? And it sounds yeah. quite sad when you put it like that. You know, <laughs> it's a bit of a depressing development. But I mean, if you're talking about like what like value does a distributor add i guess it's 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 that right but it's not really equivalent i no. I, I don't think really just certainly in terms of like building the name of of artists and building the name of, of your label i mean I, I think that um you know dsps don't look at labels in the same way anyway as record shops used to so it's not it's not quite yeah. the same in that respect. Well, no, it's it's been. I think you know they've had to they've had to adjust and change because it was like you know as as a label as well. We were like, you know, once we started our own shop front or web store, suddenly it's almost like well, it actually makes more sense for us to sell our records direct to customer. Do you know what I mean? It's just like and we because we're going to get a better return than if we sell to the shops. So the sh- the shops have had a str- you know they've had a a struggle and and the distributor has sort of been that buffer between the artist or the label and and the shop and just trying to sort of negotiate that deal do you know what i mean and try and and try and get records into into these record shops um and i guess that's in the context of of the whole just market contracting for vinyl in the last 20 years right because that's it's just been a kind of slow decline yeah yeah yeah, that's been, yeah, that's been a side game, but it's just it's it's very it's very niche. Do you know what I mean? It's it's an, it's a very niche market, and it's like it's. I always i I never sort of saw my label as as something that would 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 never release put something out that wasn't on vinyl. Um, but at the same time, you kind of sort of have to accept that that may is and may be the case. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, as a even just sort of getting on like, you know, I'm a dad of two kids and it's like, it's not the most environmentally conscious product. You know what I mean, it's like, it's got, <laughs> it's got its problems. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, there's, there's that side of it that I'm, I'm sort of aware of as well. So yeah, I think, you know, dis- distributors have, um, you know, that's why you've now, you know, you've got people like unearthed who they, they sort of do the, um, the logistics or, you know, the, um, the posting of our, our stuff, you know, they've had to change their, their business model because they came out of um, when ST Holdings disappeared. They sort of grew out of that and they've, you know, they've had to adapt the same way we all have. And then, you know, they still offer P&Ds, but they're almost better placed to, to be able, because they're, because they're acting as the, the distributor for, for say labels like me and doing the back end of things, they can see what, does and doesn't sell in a <clears throat> excuse me in a broader sense so they can be able to offer p and d deals to kind of labels and people who approach them knowing a bit like actually yeah actually he'll probably sell around x do you know what i mean and then through that they've had to offer you know literally become a record shop in themselves you know so they've got 
you got their portal whereby I think even record shops buy from them as well and cut customers as well. So it's like everyone's adapting and and uh, and changing and, they've, and you know they've done a good 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 job of it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different sort of business models basically um yeah. growing up and you know adapting to the various changes which kind of can still continue to happen actually. It's, I don't think like there hasn't been like a full resolution of the way like the business works at all, you know. So you know, the whole NFT thing for example is like, you know there's a whole other you know, can yeah. of worms, which like, you know, <laughs> people are dipping their toe into, but like, you know, the whole thing just, just carries on. Anyway, um, I wanted to, okay. So I want to ask you about autonomic, but before we get into that, I want to ask you a specific question about, um, well, <laughs> about government legislation actually, because like there's, there's two, as far as I can see, there's like, there's two pretty significant changes that have happened in the last 25 or so actually nearly 30 years um the first one is the criminal justice act of 1994 and the second one was the smoking ban which happened in 2007 and there's not well i mean i was i started going raving in like 95 or something so like they'd already that, that kind of quite big thing i mean I, i'd seen the, the criminal justice act been been talked about and like read, read, read all the articles about it but i wasn't really aware of you know the kind of practical effects that it had um but actually with the smoking ban it was like just in your face like if mm. you were a dj at that time it was like you couldn't miss it you know it was a, it was a huge change so tell me about those two things and how and and you know what your experiences of them were there what your sorry what your experiences of them were and how they um with similarities. Um, I think because well, the criminal justice bill was when? What was that? It was nine ninety-four. Ninety-four. Okay, so I f- and, ju- and just so just to clarify that for anyone who's not aware, um, that was um passed by the home secretary at the time, Michael Howard, and they essentially cr- like criminalized the like criminalized repetitive beats. They literally re- they literally named used the term repetitive beats in the legislation to really kind of clamp down on big unquestionably licensed raves basically is the long and short of it yeah i just well it's almost it's just one of those things it's like people people will find a way do you know what i mean because i think that was like uh, it's almost like i I didn't really care about any of that stuff do you know what i mean personally because i think the only i you know i knew that you know when i went to when we did castle morton and i knew that that had a that was partly responsible for why they. It's almost got to the point where the government was like, "Oh no, he's like taking the piss." Um, it was, yeah. So just, just what go on? What was what was that exactly? Well, it was it was like a free party that lasted for a what? I think it lasted for a week. You know, there was there was there was that whole thing of like the travellers were sort of moving around and going travelling around. UK and it was this convoy of, of pretty right convoy of sound systems looking for somewhere to set up um and they ended up in Castle Morton and I personally I remember you know because I lived there they they locked off all the roads in and out but because we I, we knew the area we knew ways in that they for some reason they didn't <laughs> so we we we, should, we pretty much were coming and going as we pleased um but yeah the police refused you know they couldn't couldn't get in there was all these i remember there was all these talks of like oh um kids kids as young as 12 selling acid and the but what i remember it was like yeah there was kids sort of walking around with buckets trying to sort of getting um, donations to, for for petrol to keep the generators going Do you know what <laughs> I mean? that was the only misuse of that i saw um 
so that I think, and for me, that was like, that was just, that was an amazing party. So I kind of like, I get, I can't, it's almost like, okay, I, get, I understood why, why they wanted to bring this, this bill in. But I think my experience of it was like, well, seeing how we as an industry adapt to it, do you know what I mean? It was, there was almost, and then, then it was kind of like, it was the, the turn of the licensed clubs. Do you know what I mean? You had, this is when sort of, sort of for me, like the end was, you know, th- that was, that was a big thing. Fabric was coming through, um, Bar Rumba. And that affected the music as well, didn't it? It must have. Y- yeah. But I, yeah, I suppose it did, but I think it affected it in a good way, especially, especially the end. I think the end had a great, a positive impact on, on dance music, on our scene anyway, just, just in the terms of the way, the way that club was set up, you know, the, the sound was, the sound was amazing. Just the whole vibe of the place of where the DJ booth was and everything, all these little, little things, you know, having a little, a little water fountain outside the, cause they knew every, they knew people were, were taking ease. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's like, just, just let them drink. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like, so just, it was very, it was almost, they were being very res- like honest and honest about it and responsible. So I, I just, for me, I only saw the, the, the positives. Do you know what I mean? I think that obviously it, it did, there were those, those negatives of try, trying to shut down these events and trying to shut down these, these parties. But again, I think, cause I was so entrenched in making music and, being a part of the, of, of my sort of, in my bubble, I didn't really, I didn't really notice something because I didn't have a TV. I don't remember at the time as well. So I wasn't really, didn't really care. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't big, that wasn't being, I wasn't an influence to me. And then later in the smoking ban, when, when was that again? That was. So yeah, 1st of July, 2007, which by which time you were, you know, playing out a lot right and it's yeah i think it must have well i, I know because i was as well and it was extremely uh noticeable you know the change in people's behaviors for me yeah anyway, yeah it was it was it, it was again it was like a it's almost like because i remember there we had a i think it was a black pocket uh night at plastic people on the last day that you could smoke in the clubs yeah. um and and we just we blazed in there. <laughs> we, we literally like we blazed that place up. And I think that was an I got a feeling that was the night that um we got who did we have down there? Charlie Dark, Hudson Mohawk, and it was myself, Abby, Soul Jazz was there. Remember Fatima was there. So yeah, that was that was uh that was a sick I just remember that being a really sick night. And but then after that it was just kind of like Oh, this club, well, you know, when it kind of like, it's almost like when the dust settled and the air's cleared, it's like, oh, actually these clubs stink, don't they? <laughs> yes, I, I just noticed it's like there was a heightened sense of smell. It's kind of like, wow, do you know what I mean? You just coke farts and just like, oh my God, this place is disgusting. And then clubs started burning joysticks. But then it was almost like having to, having to adjust to, you know, you're playing and then looking up and like, where's everyone gone? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they've all gone outside for a cigarette. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I mean, like the like what the way I was kind of thinking about it, I guess, and I, I kind of like the way I've gradually come around thinking about it is that it's it kind of really placed the kind of pressure on DJs to just hammer it harder, you know, to stop 
give stop giving people that opportunity to like okay um you know, this, this is all gone down a little bit now i'm gonna go and have a have a smoke i mean did did you yeah did i you suppose you could yeah. uh i guess i get i guess so i think so there was like the advent of the we used to what was it there was there was no such thing as a warm-up dj anymore everyone was just a fry up do you know what i mean it's just straight it <laughs> <laughs> was just just going full ham uh, from the opening set just because for fear of everyone <laughs> disappearing uh-huh. but you know it was again it was just a, a sort of a period of adjustment I think I think it, it was it was disheartening for a while I remember you know you kind of like you think you're doing our great and you look up and then after, after dance floor's gone you think you've you've played something wrong but you know it's just as simple as they're going for a cigarette um, it was we I think we we it did, you're right. It did, I think there was that effect on on people's sets, but for only for those people who just who weren't really, what's the word? I don't know. People maybe just maybe weren't there for the right reasons in the first place. I don't know. Just maybe you just weren't comfortable with them with themselves. It's almost like it's just kind of like it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Don't worry. They'll come back. It's just like uh, or. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, um, okay, so this is a kind of neat segue then into into autonomic, which is obviously very much of a kind of left field take on the whole drum and bass thing. And it was something that I was super, super into at the time, as you as you know. Yeah. Um I found it extremely inspiring actually what you guys did with that. So um I guess like comparing it to to how bad companies started, did you the three of you go into it in a in a slightly different way, like I mean, you said mentioned that you know, bank bank company wasn't planned at all. You just making tunes and, and kind of cracking on with it. Was was autonomic kind of similar to that, or was it was a different dynamic? Yeah, definitely. I think it was. Um, I met them down at um, Swerve. There you go. He came, finally came back to ah, me. Ah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's I met I met them down at Swerve, um, and it was their you know it was their release uh, instrumental. When I heard that uh, the track Naked Zoo on Marcus's Marcus Intellect's label Solar and I just kind of like, it literally just kind of blew my mind like what in the hell is this and who wrote this and who the hell are instrumental and I just yeah it just went down there and we just we got you know we got talking and just kind of like we just found that we had a lot in common just in terms of equipment and our, look, our outlook and they you know they they you know they'd kind of come up with um Jim and Source Direct and again, sort of knew Nico as well. And I, you know, I knew Nico. So there was these sort of connections there. And they just, and, um, and I think they just, you know, they liked what I was doing in terms of what I was DJing. Cause I was, I was DJing down at Swerve at the, around that time as well. Um, so they, you know, they invite, invited me up to the studio. He says, oh, you should come up. And it was just kind of one of those ones just walking into the studio. And it was just like, literally just like going back in time. Just be like, Holy, because as as bad company, we 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 embraced the whole digital revolution. We you know we plugins and all that kind of all that world. And I'd had all this. Uh, I I I knew I'd built up a collection of equipment, but I'd sort of given it out to people. And because kind of like it, I didn't because I was just using my laptop. I didn't need to. Do you know what I mean? I didn't need them. I didn't need the desk and this and that compressor and all that. Um, so then suddenly going to the studio and just seeing all like holy shit. Like you guys, you're you're still you you're using all this. Like, and I've got that. I've got one of them. I've got, and 
so we just we just well, I don't know we just sort of hit it off uh, in terms of a vibe and I think I just because it was around 2009 and I was r- trying to write my album my the Gemini principle album and they when we did a collab on their bl- uh, blush response and I just I just loved just loved what they were doing and just loved their their approach to it all and what um what drove them and what kind of they're very they're, they're very different people Al and Bod as you probably well know um and but that sort of sort of um the difference between them is what kind of made Insta what it was um and I just I didn't want to sort of disturb that I almost like try, I was trying to become a sort of like a an addition to what they were doing I wanted to you know um I wanted to be able to add to it in some way and learn from them as well. And so, yeah, it was just kind of like, we just started writing stuff. And again, it was like another, like, cause I lived in, Jesus, where did I live then? Stoke Newington. And they, they were all the way out in, on the last stop on the, uh, out past Heathrow. So. Yeah. So it's, it's the same studio that Al is in now, right? It's the yeah. zoo. Yeah. The zoo. So I used to travel there. So I used to take me what? used to commute pretty high every day it was like a, <laughs> that's a long way as well yeah it was a long old journey do you know what i mean so just but you'd really obviously just make make the most of it um and it was again it was just really organic do you know what i mean it was just kind of like writing all this stuff and they were writing all this stuff on their own as well and it was sort of influencing the stuff i was making as well because i was kind of feeding off it and working going down to um, you know djing down at swerve and then what it literally sort of started off like as a, a 10, 15 minute section of my mixes in the middle, the middle of my set. I'd be playing a lot of their stuff and what we were doing at the time. And it, it was, you know, people would look at it like, what the hell are you doing? And what is it? What are you playing? Do you know what I mean? What's that's, it, it was almost like, that's not DMB. And it's just, well, it is. It's just not what you think DMB is. Do you know what I mean? So. And I think that was in some ways what inspired the the podcast, whereby we wanted to kind of, you know, I remember it's like me and da- uh, Damon sitting down, it's like, like, yeah, we should do, you know, we should do do something, do like do like a podcast, and then so we can sort of bring bring what we're doing and what we're hearing other people doing together into one into this place, so you know people can sort of, sort of connect with it in in the in that in the same way that we've connected with it um which is why we kind of which, which is why it's sort of the, the podcast came about and also we wanted with it as well with the way that we formatted the podcast as well which is kind of like because i remember especially in dnb everyone was really guarded about their influences and their sources and things like that but we we, we were just kind of like we wanted to be open with all of that information with like this is who we're into this is this is what music we love. This is what's influencing us, influencing us. And if you listen to this mix in the middle, you can hear that. Do you know what I mean? You can hear where those influences are coming into play. The only plan that we had is that I think I was very adamant of like, we should just do a set number. Do you know what I mean? We should just like, let's just, just, and, get, and then we've kind of like, we've got a goal to sort of look forward to or because I, I don't want to be sort of, sort of flogging a dead horse kind of thing do you know what I mean it's just like overdoing it and overkilling so it's just like and we and I was I was really sort of really big on this whole idea of like um something I'd sort of 
done throughout my career, kind of playing off suspicion, fashion and rumours kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like that whole, what's that? What's going on there? Why, you know, why is that all greyed out? And why is there only, you know, what's what's coming next? When's that coming? It's almost like we sort of are trying to feed into kind of the create, I suppose, create a hype in a way around it, um, weirdly, but, and it seemed to, it worked, <laughs> to be fair. Um, no, it was great, man. It really was. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah, totally. yeah, it took, was, it was, it was like, it was weird watching it grow because I think by the time we got to 10, I think it was, I think by the time we got to layer 10, we were, we were on a world tour. Do you know what I mean? And then, you know, the fabric, fabric live CD, you know the 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 residency at Fabric, and it was just all off the back of this of this this podcast series that we created. Um, and I think we took it. There it was a year gap between Layer Eleven and Layer Twelve. It was just <laughs> kind of like, it's like I've got we've got to, I've got to get this finished. We have to do it. Do you know? What I mean? So we, it was always supposed to be twelve. And yeah, it was always yeah, it was always going to be tw- it was always going to be twelve. Um, and it's still there. The website club-autonomics.com, it's still there. I've I still pay the fees to keep it going. Yeah, it was, I was on there today. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, as long as as long as I've got some money in the bank, that site will still be there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um all right, I've 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 kept you ages. I want to ask you one more thing. Yeah. Um which is about albums. Um, it's a topic I've asked almost, well, I think I've asked everyone about it who's been on the, on the podcast so far. And everyone, um, like, I think albums seem to be a kind of, almost a kind of romantic thing for, for producers. Yeah. Um, and in a way which is, I, I guess, completely understandable. And I'm, I'm exactly the same. I love albums. But I mean, obviously, the way people sort of listen to music has changed and, you know, the, the changes in the... Um, in the, in the wider industry that we've kind of touched upon a bit, um, have meant that the app, the kind of format generally is a, you know, obviously it's like fallen out of favor to, to an extent. But I just wanted to ask you about your albums because you've released um, four in the last four years. Yeah. Uh, um, and before that, there was just one in 2008. So how do you, how do you think about it? And like, I'm presuming that it is quite important to you given your, given your recent history. So yeah, talk to me about albums. I think, yeah, it's probably, I suppose it's just a, a product of my, of my upbringing. Do you know what I mean? The album, the, whether it be, you know, I grew up with cassettes. So you were forced to listen to an album in a certain direction, you know what I mean? One track after another. So that, I, that I've always loved that, that idea, that, that format and that, that, um, that journey that you're, that you're, you know, you're supposed to take with, with an album. But, and that's why I think I've continued to try and do that and then still sort of continue it. But I understand why it's not as important anymore. Do you know what I mean? I, it's, it's, you know, when, especially when you've got people like with, say, for example, with Spotify, and if you've got a free account, isn't it automatically set to shuffle? Shuffle play. So you like, yeah. it's just like, but your album's like, you, you're fucked. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so the, the newer generation probably doesn't really care, but it's, it's like, I'm not doing it for, for anyone but me. Do you know what I mean? So I don't really, it's as long as I'm happy, I want to be able to listen to my album from beginning to end and be happy with, with it. Um, I kind of went back to an old school with my, um, 
what's it called? Week or no signal, where I, I added a, a mix which has which wasn't no one had done for quite a while, especially in DMB. Because I just like I like you know I used to love that with drum and bass albums of being of being able to put it on and it being a mix because I was used to that uh, that format and that way of of, of consuming consuming DMB. Um, yep. So and I've done it with actually I've done it with a, a new album I got which is. I've written, which is a kind of ambient drone one, but I've still done it as a mix because I liked, I used, to, I, I wrote it for me and it was almost like it was something I used to put on to kind of help me go to sleep and it, and it worked. So I was like, you know, that's probably not a good, good sales pitch. Do you know what I mean? It's an album that'll put you to sleep, <laughs> but, but you know, I'm sure there's a playlist out there for it somewhere. Um, I like that. I like that format. I like that. Um, when an when an artist puts that kind of care and attention into into a record of like this is how I wanted to start and this is how I wanted to end and this is you know and this is the story that I want to tell because I assume that there is a story there do you know what I mean there's you know if I listen check the albums that I've sort of grown up listening to whether it be sort of you know Marvin Gaye or um, Stone Rose Stone Roses. Depeche Mode, you know, all those sort of, you know, those great albums, they just, every, every track resonated with me for a different reason. But, uh, you know, as a, it's almost like a, it's like, they're like movies in some ways to me. Do you know what I mean? That I can go back and revisit. So I like the idea of having that out there in the world. But like I said, again, at the same time, it's not really for anyone else but me. Uh, if it, and if and if people like it, then that's a bonus, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that's quite a healthy way to think about making music. To be honest, I think if you get too deep in the weeds on what people might or might not like, it can be it can muddy the waters, can't it? To an extent. Yeah, it's not it's not a good thing, man. It's just kind of I enough. Mean, you know, I just it's 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 why I love just writing like doing collabs with people and things like that. Just kind of like I just want to see what happens. I don't really, I don't. I'm an end product. It's it's never been of interest for me. And I think it's like, isn't it? What's was it? Was he say? Was it Quincy Jones or something like? Once you think of, was it? Once you think about talk about money, like the devil enters the room kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, some totally. kind of, <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I just kind of like, I want to make, enjoy making music for, for the right reasons for me, ultimately. Um, it's, it's, it's weird that I've kind of like, it's only, it's within the last four years that I've, cause there's such a big gap between my first album and my second album because I just didn't really want to share my music with anyone. You know, I mean, it was kind of like I put me almost like I put music out. I, in some ways, exit my label was was gave me the ability to hide in and not have to release music because right, it kept my it, it kept my name out there as uh, as Debridge. Do you know what I mean? The head of exit, and I had and I was I had all these great artists f- giving me music I could play and release on the label, and it was sick. But it just allowed me to just kind of do my thing in the studio and not really have to worry about any of that. So it's only in those sort of the last four years of learning to kind of share what it is that I've written with people. Was that, was that like a, was that like a confidence thing or was it was, I mean, what, what, what do you put that down to? Not wanting to, not wanting to put your music out. I think definitely confidence has got a lot to do with it, especially with, um, 
especially with the fact that I was being sent so much sick music that, you know, because of that, the art, you know, you're talking about the arms race of people playing tunes to kind of get rewinds. There was also the sonic arms race of tunes sounding as loud and as big as, and you know, as everything. And I just couldn't, I couldn't compete in that, in that war. And it wasn't really a battle I wanted to compete with, compete in. And so, you know, I'd write, I'd, I'd be writing all this stuff. I'd be really happy, but you, then you'd put it up against a tune that I, you know, that I might be playing out. And it just sounds like, oh my God, this is just, it's just night and day. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, so there was that, that side of it, definitely the confidence of not being able to, play uh, which kind of fed into me not being able to play my own music as well so i i kind of but i was almost happy with that because it was just kind of making i make music as a it's a what's the word it's um it's my own sort of it's for my own therapeutic means do you, do you know what i mean it's just kind of like i just enjoy i enjoy noodling and i enjoy just writing stuff and getting things done and I, I enjoy the the act of and the art of making music, and the the other side of it is, it's it's like some, you know something you have to think about, and I didn't I don't really want to have to think about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but but I'm I'm I've, I'm getting better. The, I'm I'm learning to let go. I'm learning to be. I'm learning to share. I guess. Well, you've re- but, released a lot of stuff in the last few years, so there must have been a, a bit of a shift, I guess. Yeah, I think, well, I think a lot of it down, also down to my label manager, kind of like, dude, like, what are you doing? You've got all this shit. Just like, just, just, just get it out there. Do you know what I mean? Just kind but of that like, could really help having a, having a sort of like neutral voice. You can just tell you what's what. That can be a huge help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's again, I think also I also come from because this is maybe it's a generational thing as well, where because I definitely saw, especially in the sort of like the. Um, a hard a renegade hardware bc days to sort of today there wasn't this need for everything to have to be released do you know what i mean it's just kind of like the i think i've said it before but it's, it's kind of like it's if it didn't come out at the time it's because it wasn't good enough do you know what i mean and just it's like okay okay we're sort of 10 years down, down the line it's it's still maybe it's still you know looking back actually it was all right but at the time it wasn't good enough so it didn't need to come out, but there's, there's this, there's this definite kind of like, I think it's changing. It's changing more now, but there was, there wasn't this era of like everyone feeling like everything they released had to be, had to be out there and available. Do you know what I mean? And it's almost like, which is where the, the positive, in some ways, the positive side of dub plates was there was that it had that natural filtration, which you don't necessarily get now. Um, yeah, I think there's a there's a sort of pressure to be constantly doing stuff now, which maybe wasn't there so much. Yeah, there was. Yeah, there was. There wasn't that, that real. There was a pressure to obviously to write. There was a, re- a pressure to write big tunes and write bangers, definitely. But it was almost like you knew if something wasn't good enough, you know. So it was like I'm not going to share this with the world. So that's again, it's almost like these little things that have stuck with me is kind of like don't need to share this with the world. It was never a case of like content for content's sake, which sometimes yeah. you get the impression that you know some people are. That's how it works now. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I think I think there is it is getting. I think it's changing. I've, I've noticed like since I've you know started doing my live thing with the Black Electric, and I kind of like I'm going for another sort of transitional pay, phrase as a producer and and a 
DJ performer, whatever it is, and discovering new acts and things outside of my immediate genre. And I'm just, it's, I mean, really enjoying it because it's just, it's like, almost like I've been stuck in that world for so long that I sort of forgot that there's a whole, whole other world of things going on out there. So yeah, just, just discovering great music and just, and also as well, what's nice as well, because I'm coming away from DMB a little bit in terms of what I'm into, I'm hearing the differences in mixes now where there isn't that need for things to be super loud or whatever. It's just like people are just writing writing tunes and enjoying it and this is how it sounds. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, so you can enjoy it, you can enjoy, enjoy it for what it is. So almost I'm feeling a lot more comfortable in myself because of that, because my, this is, it, it may not sound, you know, it may not be as a big wall of sound as everything else, but it still stands up in its own right. So that's, that's helped. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that's probably a good place to finish, actually. Uh, okay. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, it's been great. Thank you so much for doing it, man. No worries. No worries. Good to, it's good to speak to you. Yeah, that was Debridge and... I really, really enjoyed having that conversation. Um, there was some really, really fun stuff in there, um, particularly regarding Durham Basin politics and um, the machinations of all that stuff and also his um, reminiscences from the early 90s and all that. I mean, I'm just, um, yeah, I love all those. I love all those stories. It's great to um, to get them firsthand. As I mentioned uh, during that, I started going out um, in my mid-teens in the mid nineties. Um, so I, I missed that kind of really early jungle sound. Um, certainly the clubs anyway, I wasn't really able, I was too young, unfortunately to go out to those and I miss acid house as well. But, um, yeah, Darren's a bit older than me. So, um, yeah, he, um, has some of those stories that I don't have anyway. So, um, just before we finish a couple of things, uh, I mentioned last week that my SCB release hang 10, is out. It's out on Who Whom, which is a techno offshoot of Hot Flush. So to celebrate that, last Saturday I played a set on Her Berlin, the um, you know that streaming thing in the bathroom. You've probably seen it. Um, it's my first time I've been on there, and um, it was a lot of fun. Thanks to everyone who watched. You can get into it over on their YouTube channel or go to their website, Her Berlin, H O E R Berlin dot com. There's obviously loads and loads of other great stuff on there musically, um, but it was nice, yeah, nice to make my debut. Played a load of stuff actually um, forthcoming on that Who Whom offshoot of Hot Flush, tracks by BM6, Psych, Anna Cost, played a few things by me as well, a different version of that Hang 10 track actually um, I played on there, which is going to be released in some form, I think, shortly. Um, more news on that soon. So yeah, just to finish, um, if you've got anything to say about the show, then join us in the Discord. There's a link in the show notes to do that. And of course, my weekly appeal for you to leave a rating and a review. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, it really, really does help. Just hit that five-star button. You don't have to leave a long review or anything, but obviously it'd be nice if you want to say something nice about it. But the ratings count. They really do count. So yeah, please do that. If you're enjoying the show, Anyway, if you're not, then maybe if you don't, if you're still listening after two hours, then I guess you probably are enjoying it. So anyway, um, that's it from me this week. I mentioned at the top we're on Tuesdays now going forward. So um, 
yeah, every Tuesday there'll be a new one of these for you to get your teeth into. Thanks for listening this week. Debridge was great, and next week's guest is also going to be great. So I'll see you next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.